0: Today's scripture will be from 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. The sermon topic this morning is not an easy one, um, but it is a timely one. And I'm reminded of a very wise uh, pastor saying one time that the Christian life is impossible (coughs) except for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And so as we read these verses about sanctification, let's be reminded about that, that we are empowered to live what we are called to live. Mm 1 Thessalonians 4:3-8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity. But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you. Uh, my name is Tyler Chernesky. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you joined us for worship this morning, that you made it here safely. Uh, after last night's storm Uh, this morning we are wrapping up a sermon series that we've been in for several weeks here on vices and virtues Uh, we've been taking a closer look at those habits of heart and mind that form us into people that are more like jesus or less like jesus that take us in positive directions or in negative directions uh, that bring flourishing over time or that bring destruction over time and so this morning we are concluding that series together Um, so we've made it we're almost there we're engaging the final vice on our list and that vice is lust um I know, this is like the Father's Day gift you've always wanted. Uh, So let me say this before we dive in. It is entirely unintentional that we're doing a lust sermon on Father's Day. When we were planning uh, this series, we wanted to stick with the traditional historical listing of the vices. And so, uh, as it just so happens, the theologians that made these lists hundreds of years ago, they put gluttony and lust at the end of that list. Because they saw those two vices as distinct, whereas kind of the other vices, there's no maybe positive take on envy, there's no really great way to be angry or mad or vengeful. Uh, Gluttony, as we learned last week, there is kind of good ways to enjoy food, right? We can just take it a step too far with gluttony. And in the same way with uh, lust this morning, there are good, great expressions of sexuality and sexual expression, just sometimes it can go too far. So they've been at the end of the list always. Uh, We put them at the end of this sermon series. Uh, I think if we could do it again, we might do something differently. Uh, So we didn't mean anything when we did sloth on Mother's Day. There was no connection we were trying to make there. And in the same way, we mean nothing uh, by doing lust on Father's Day. Uh, Next time we do a series like this, we'll pull out the calendar, I promise. Uh, But church you know and I know that we need to have this conversation we need to have an open family dialogue in church about this specific vice lust this habit of heart and mind that has such deep roots and devastating consequences I mean you know this You know this already. There's something within me, there's something within you that intuitively recognizes that sex, when it's abused, when it's taken out of bounds, when it crosses the line, it can result in a certain kind of physical and emotional, um, just despair, it can bring this kind of toll that is heavy and real. I think there's something just intuitively within all of us that recognizes that, hey, hey, sex is powerful. we all know that that power has been used time and time again in destructive ways we've heard or read stories of friends uh, who've experienced sexual assault or sexual abuse and our hearts have broken we've sat down with friends and family members and heard stories of how they've been profoundly affected by the sexual decisions of others right and we've, we've cried with them we've reflected on our own stories Uh, Perhaps thinking of moments we wish we could take back or asking God, how could you have let that happen to me? Uh, If it's sexual addiction, sexual abuse, forced sex, uh, these are all real things that have a real toll within our world and within this room. So I don't think this morning that I need to convince you that sex, when it crosses the line, when it's taken out of bounds, when it's abused, it it affects real human lives in profound and significant ways. There's something inside all of us, I think, that already knows that. Yet, at the same time, there are also so many ways in which we regularly allow sex and sexuality to be packaged and airbrushed and presented to us as entertainment. And I think of popular Netflix shows, shows I watch and love. I think of ads I see on YouTube, uh, the plots of best-selling novels, blockbuster movies. uh, Just scroll through the lyrics of Spotify's most played songs. Watch the music videos that accompany those tracks. and, And you'll quickly realize that we are immersed in sexual imagery, sexual language, and sexual stories. I mean, we haven't just let sex become entertainment. We've also allowed it to sell to us. Um, I think of kind of these advertisements that come in the magazines I subscribe to, which aren't even that exciting of magazines. I'm talking like The Atlantic and The New Yorker, but full-page ads, right? Or I think of the uh, maybe just emails that come into my inbox from my favorite retailers, and they all have kind of young, beautiful people, right, presented by these big companies to make their brands more appealing, Uh, By, again, bottling and selling sexiness or sexuality. And have you thought about that fact that on one hand, I think there is something within us, within kind of our culture more broadly that recognizes sex when it's abused, when it's taken too far, when it goes out of bounds, it has deep and real consequences. So we all know this on an intuitive level. And yet, we're all kind of part of this culture that allows sex to be treated so cheaply, um, so casually, uh, be used to sell us anything from cars to clothes to chewing gum, Right. So at one hand, we all know that, hey, sex really matters. There's something deep and impactful that happens when it's abused. But on another hand, we treat it so cheaply. And I'd like to suggest this morning that the thing that's within us that allows us to know that sex matters deeply but occasionally say, oh, I guess it doesn't matter that much and kind of allow it to be used in such small or trivial or insignificant ways, I want to suggest that that thing within us, that's That's lust. Because lust at its heart, it ignores the power and the purpose of sex and looks only to its pleasure. And of all the power that we intuitively know exists in sex, all the kind of good purposes that exist in sex, we ignore those for a moment and focus only on pleasure. And that, friends, that's lust. And it's precisely this narrow focus on merely the pleasure of sex, right? Lust that lets us pretend that sex and sexualizing others and objectifying others, it, it doesn't matter. It's focused only on pleasure. And so turning people into objects of sexual satisfaction and desire, that, that doesn't really count. That's what lust tells us and so this morning we're going to take a brief pause and look at the words of scripture we're going to revisit together what the bible has to say about the nature of sex and how we might approach sex in a way that honors god and most respects our neighbors then we're going to take stock of our own lives and our own habits, and see if there's maybe some new disciplines we need to cultivate, some virtues that need to be grown in our life, or if there's any kind of habits of our hearts and minds that we need to let go of, so that lust loses its grip on our hearts. So that's where we're headed. If you've got a Bible with you, would you open it to First Thessalonians four? We'll begin in verse three. Uh, that's on page nine eight seven of our community Bibles. First Thessalonians, uh, chapter four, verse three. Uh, The Apostle writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I want you to look again at how this verse begins. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Church, I've got to be honest with you. I love the beginning of this verse because this verse answers so clearly the question that I probably get most often is a pastor. I'll tell you time and time again, I probably couldn't even count the times that I'm asked by parishioners, what is God's will for my life? In the same way that I feel like waiters and waitresses are always hear, can we get some more water over here, please? Pastors are always being asked, what is God's will for my life? Is God's will for me to do this or that, to make this commitment or that commitment? And in the same way that kind of this, you know, what can we do with God's will? What does God want for me? How do I make this happen? That's a question that's on people's minds. Here, Paul answers it so clearly and concisely. Here, he makes it very explicit. Paul says, you want to know what God's will is for your life? You want to know what God wants for you, what God desires for you? Simply, it's your sanctification. He wants you to become more like Jesus, That's what we mean by sanctification. I want to be clear. This isn't something that any of us get perfectly or instantly or immediately, but it's something that's supposed to grow within us over time. A pastor I really admire uh, preached a lot on sanctification, and he used to say, when you think of sanctification, it's not about perfectly, but increasingly, right? So it's not about, oh, this is something I've nailed and I've got all the way down, but it's saying, you know what? I'm not all I'm supposed to be. But I'm not everything I used to be. And over time, if I'm honest, yeah, day by day, I am looking more and more like Christ. That, friends, is sanctification. And that is what Paul says is God's will for your life. Over time, God wants you to become more and more like Him. I mean, here at Christ Community, we talk a lot about sanctification using the metaphor of the yoke. Have you heard us say this? Uh, before. It's a popular image for us. It's an image Jesus introduces in Matthew 11. And it's this idea of kind of like a younger ox being yoked to an older ox. So you get strapped in there together. And then the younger ox learns from the older ox how to plow in a straight line, how to stay focused on the task at hand, how to be the most productive and successful animal one can be on the farm. And this image that Jesus introduces, being yoked, being connected to him, we think that's how we become sanctified, by living life with Jesus side by side, learning to love what he loves and lives how he lives. That's how we take this sanctification journey. And Paul begins his conversation about sexuality and sexual ethic by saying, hey, don't forget the whole reason for this conversation, what we're actually talking about here, underneath it all is the idea that God's will for your life is for you to become more like him. He begins by placing his whole conversation about sex within the context of sanctification. He says it's all about becoming more like Jesus. And then Paul elaborates. He outlines what sanctified sexual expression and sexual desire looks like. He says that God wants, in verse 5, each of you to know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not no God. Paul starts by saying God's will is for you to become more like Jesus, and then he outlines what that might look like, saying, yeah, it means you're going to learn how to control your own body. It means you're going to be someone who's not just subject to every whim and desire that you might experience. You're not just going to do whatever you might feel like doing. Rather, as one who is spiritually maturing, uh, you're going to learn a little self-restraint along the way. But why, Paul? Why, why is self-restraint important particularly with regard to sex. Well, look at verse six. Paul says, this is so that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. Don't miss this. Paul says that the Christian commitment to resist lust and that the Christian commitment to learn to be in kind of control of one's own body, to have this self-discipline and self-restraint, it's rooted in the Christian value to love everyone else as if they were your own brother or sister. Jesus says it this way, to love your neighbor as yourself. You remember those words from Mark when we were in there, in Matthew's gospel. It's in all the gospels. This is something Jesus really said, this idea he's approached by scribes and Pharisees and asked, what's the most important of all the laws? And he said, oh, simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This idea that we love our neighbor. And I'm sure that these words of Jesus are in Paul's mind when he's here saying, Hey, sexual ethics, it's important so you can love your neighbor well, so that you might not transgress against your brother or your sister. At the end of the day, it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor. And here, as Paul speaks about the goodness of self control and self restraint with regard to sex, he says, Hey, this is also that you do no harm, so that you don't hurt yourself or hurt your neighbor. Now, this takes us back to where we began this morning, because we said earlier that there's something deep within us that recognizes sex has a power to do great harm when its kind of power is is misused or abused or when it's used in ways it's not meant to be used. And Paul here is saying that the goal of sexual ethics, the goal of kind of the Christian vision of sexuality is so that we might not hurt someone else by the decisions we make or the actions that we take. And so I think that this raises a significant question. Uh, What sex is good sex and what sex ultimately harms others? And what kind of sexual expressions help us love God and love our neighbors best? And what kinds of sexual expressions tend to hurt individuals and hurt communities? And I want to be real clear here, these kinds of questions about the ethics of sex, how sex is best used or best engaged, these aren't just questions that Christians ask or that faith people ask. I mean these are questions that cultures answer and re-answer and re-evaluate throughout history. I mean many folks have answered this question. This is a, a human question that different philosophers and thinkers have engaged in a variety of ways. But there is a distinctive Christian answer, I believe, to these kinds of questions. So I want to outline that answer briefly. Here's how I think a a Christian might answer these questions. What sex is good sex and what sex ultimately harms others? I think Christians would start by saying, hey, sex is something God made and God made it very very good. He could have chosen to create human beings in such a way that, you know, we can bond and we can find intimacy with each other and we can reproduce in a way that's maybe not as creative as sex is or as powerful or personable or enjoyable, but God made sex as something that would tie humans together on a deep level. Uh, He made it in such a way that it would kind of force folks to be open and vulnerable with one another. He made sex to be something fun and something significant, something exciting as well as deep and meaningful. And because God made sex in this way, because he uh, put so much within it and made it something so unique and glorious, he said, you know what? It's best for sex to happen in a special kind of relationship that lasts a lifetime. I mean, that's what Christians talk about when we talk about marriage. We talk about a relationship of commitment where one person says, hey, I promise to be here, and I promise to be here. And, and this is so that sex can take place within a relationship where there's a promise of safety and security. So that this powerful and purposeful and pleasurable item, the sex can be engaged in a, in, a, in a place that's safe, in a relationship that's committed, in a place where there's stability and the promise that no one's going anywhere. And if this view of sex and sexuality sounds familiar to you, that's not surprising because this view of kind of marriage and sex and kind of proper bounds for sex and sexual expression, this has been prominent in various human cultures throughout history. But if this view of sex and sexuality also sounds old fashioned to you or out of touch, uh, that's also not surprising. Because this view, it's not necessarily the, the prevailing or the most dominant view in our culture currently. There are other voices, other smart people that have suggested that sex is something that can happen when two consenting adults agree. Uh, Or maybe sex is something that can be enjoyed with one person one weekend and another the next. Uh, Sex is something that there's a time in your life where maybe you can explore a little bit and then finally settle on one committed partner. Uh, These are other ideas that exist in the world of, of sex and sexuality. And without intending to be rude or disrespectful to any different viewpoints in this room this morning, I would like to ask in this moment, can you at least see the beauty and safety and human flourishing that is designed into the Christian vision for sex and sexuality. I know this is a place where there's differing opinions, but can you see, and I'm persuaded that the beauty of this view of sexuality that, that is built around commitment and trust and marriage and stability, I mean all these things, that it's designed to minimize any kind of sexual harm or damage. We know sex is powerful, and to maximize intimacy and sexual experience and joy and pleasure, that's what I see the Christian vision for sexuality doing. Can you see this morning the, the joy, the stability, the commitment, the love that God intended when he designed sex and built its boundaries? I mean, I think far from being prudish or kind of overly pious, the Christian vision of sex is one that acknowledges the power and purpose and pleasure of sex and celebrates all three. It acknowledges sex as a unique human experience that bonds people together and makes families. It says sex is a good thing. Yet, we all know that even though this is the Christian vision of sex, this is probably far from the Christian reality of sex. I mean, Christians might know what God intended for sex, but man, we don't always do it, do we? Because Christians cheat on their spouses, Christians hook up, Christians fantasize about co-workers, Christians Search for porn. Christians watch movies they have no business watching and then talk about those stars with their coworkers in ways and in language they have no business using. Christians don't live according to their own sexual ethic. And again, I'd like to suggest that the habits of hearts and mind that make that possible, that allow Christians to know probably this vision, this sort of ideal state for sex, and to still make compromises, that habit of heart and mind that allows that to happen, that's lust. And so in our moments that remain together, I'd like to take a look at three characteristics of lust. And then as we're looking at these characteristics, talk about maybe some habits that can help us combat lust well. So I want to look a little bit at how lust operates, what it does, what it assumes, and then speak about some habits that can help us combat that, that can help us to be the kind of people that don't take the purpose and power out of sex and just pursue its pleasure, but instead try to live into this robust Christian ethic that, again, is intended to maximize love and stability and care and minimize sexual harm. So three characteristics of lust. Here's the first one. Lust leads us to forget the humanity of those we find attractive. I think this is something we got to understand about lust. It leads us to forget the humanity of those we find attractive. And this is important to grasp because there is nothing wrong with recognizing beauty or physical attractiveness of another person. Uh, That's not lust. And some folks miss this. And they suggest that the fight against lust, it's kind of one when an individual just no longer recognizes like any beauty in the world, as if I'm, just, I'm untainted by any person that I might come across. Some folks would suggest that that's what it looks like to win the battle against lust. I'd say that kind of misses the mark a bit, because lust, it's not about recognizing beauty. It's about what we do once we notice it. So, there's nothing wrong with kind of noticing that a coworker is good looking. But what happens with lust? It's when we start daydreaming about all the things we might like to say or do with that coworker if we knew no one would find out. And lust, it takes this recognition of beauty and it takes it a step too far. See, it's not that beauty is the problem. It's when lust twists beauty and declares, you know what, this good thing that exists, this good thing that I see, this person, they're actually here for my pleasure. See, I have the right to stare and think and assume I can do whatever I want because they exist for my benefit. That's the assumption. That's the thinking that lust takes. It it notices this beauty, but then it dehumanizes the person and says, no, they exist for me. It makes people objects that can be consumed and controlled. It leads us to the point where we're no longer thinking of other people as our brothers and sisters, right? This is what it would look like to be conformed in the image of Christ, and it instead says, hey, these people, they're good. they make me feel good, they make me feel young, they make me feel powerful, they make me feel like I'm enough, I can do, think, say whatever I want, that these people exist for my pleasure. Lust, it leads us to forget the humanity of those we find attractive, which is why, It's so important in our fight against lust that we place ourselves in relationships that remind us of the humanity of others, to place ourselves in relationships, uh, particularly with people that we might find attracted, be it men or women, in in bonds that are non-sexualized and healthy. So Rebecca DeYoung, who we've quoted throughout this series, she writes this, she says, the best advice in resisting lust is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that too, and don't worry, we'll get there in a bit. Uh, but to have good friends. If we have genuine friendships in which we learn to give and receive love in a healthy and satisfying way, we will be less inclined to wander off looking for sham substitutes and quick fixes. We believe it's in the context of friendship That we learn to love others and serve others in in conversations and exchanges that aren't predicated on romance or in situations where we aren't seeking sex. In friendship, we learn to treat people as people, not commodities. We learn to ask, how can I appreciate and care for this person? Instead of saying, how can this person make me feel better or make me feel a certain way? I mean, very clearly, this is why at Christ Community, we form community groups that have both men and women. We want our church members to learn within the context of community groups how to relate well with others, maybe even people they might find attractive, right? Now, to be clear, this isn't to say that all you need to do to diminish less grip on your life is join a community group. Um, (laughs) But this is to say that true friendship, deep friendships, are one of the ways that we grow in our ability to see others, women and men, as people created in the image of God, And that in friendships where we recognize the dignity and value of others, even those we might find attractive, it's critical. It allows us to diminish the view that this person exists for me and raise the view that this person is someone God loves dearly. And that's a critical step in the fight against lust. So first characteristic, lust, it leads us to diminish the humanity in others, which is why friendship and relationship are so important. Second, lust leads to lust. Lust leads to lust. This is my tweetable way of saying that lust is self-perpetuating, that generally a little lust becomes a little more lust, becomes a little more lust, becomes a little more lust. What was attractive and kind of satisfying for me no longer is, so I need to move on to this, to this, to this. It's self-perpetuating. Like all the vices we've discussed, lust is like a muscle. It grows with you. So over time, lust, it it starts to shape and reshape how we think and how we behave, how we respond to others and how we spend our time. I think this is what makes lust particularly addicting. Uh, It it has kind of this desire for more, more, more. It's an appetite that can never be fully and finally satisfied. It's insatiable. It pulls us in. And I think one of the ways we see this so prevalently in our culture is through the widespread use of pornography because porn is what promises sexual pleasure without cost or commitment even though it is incredibly costly. I mean study after study has demonstrated that porn it can lead uh, users to depression, it diminishes capacity for intimacy, it actually causes less sa- sexual satisfaction in real world relationships. It can result in intense feelings of loneliness a uh, time wasted just more and more hours consumed uh, if you want to learn more i'd highly recommend a website called fightthenewdrug.org and all they've done is sort of consolidate the best data that's available into one website treat about all the different studies released about porn and the effects of porn but fightthenewdrug.org great resource about all the ways that porn uh, reshapes our minds um, and I want to say this as it relates to porn. Many, time it's, many times it's presented as predominantly a male issue. And there's want to say for a few reasons that that's, that's actually not quite true. One of three visitors to adult websites are women, and 17% of women, this is kind of survey data, would say that they struggle with pornography addiction. And I just want to say that for a few reasons. I think churches do a disservice when they make sexual sin primarily a man's sin. That's probably why I had to make a little Father's Day disclosure at the beginning of this message. That's something we've done bad. I mean, that's, that's on us. Um, sexual expression, sexual desire is something that all humans have. It's not something that just men have. I think that's the assumption that undermines this particular, uh, I don't know, thing we've missed in the church. And so the idea of porn is just only a men's thing and not a women's thing, it creates undue shame. Uh, It creates kind of excessive stigma, particularly among our, our sisters in the church. And so I just want to say this isn't a male problem or a woman problem. This is a human problem. It's a problem that's so prevalent in our time which is why it's so important for us to be thoughtful and proactive as it relates to boundaries we establish concerning media and internet usage. Now, I was thinking about boundaries this week, and I couldn't help but recall a moment a few years ago when I told my parents, hey, we all need to sit down and watch the movie Juno. Have you seen this movie, Juno? Uh, big MTV movie a few years ago. It's about uh, this teen mom, Juno, who gets pregnant by her longtime boyfriend, Polly Bleeker. Um, and the first scene of this movie is a little graphic you got to know this about my parents. They are so saved. Uh, And so we're sitting there for this first scene, and it's there on the TV. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, I forgot about this. I'm dead. Like, they're thinking, what is this movie you brought back into our home? Uh, But then what happens, and if you know the story, and so I'm spoiler alert, but it's been out a long time. Do you know it's about a teen mom who ultimately gives her baby over for adoption? And the reason I thought my parents might love it is because I was adopted at birth. Um, And so I thought, oh, we're going to, you know, get all the tears and feels. And we did. We're sitting there at the end, you know, that little strum song, and just tears are streaming down the face. And, oh, gosh, we love you. You're the best thing we ever bought. I mean, it was just a really, really sweet moment. And because of where my parents were in kind of their own faith journey and their personal maturity and their spiritual maturity, watching Juno, even with that first scene, wasn't a problem for them didn't take them to kind of a place of bad thoughts, didn't lead them to think anything they shouldn't be thinking or do anything they shouldn't be doing. To the contrary, it actually spawned all kinds of feelings of gratitude and thankfulness. And we're so glad, Tyler, that God brought you into our lives. But because of that explicit nature of the first scene, some of us in this room might need to be honest and say, you know what, I'm not sure if I could handle Juno. Some of us might need to be honest and say, you know what, I'm not sure if I could handle an unfiltered internet connection. I don't know if I can handle this particular app. I don't know if I should be watching this show. I probably can't handle going to that bar or seeing that group of people. Maybe I shouldn't be Facebook friends with that person. Are you hearing what I'm saying, church? And the thing with boundaries is that they're different for every person. They're rooted in our experiences. And we establish good boundaries when we look inside and say, this might be fine for someone else, but this isn't good for me. This is always going to take me to a place that's not healthy. And so even though some other folks might be able to handle it, I'm going to choose to say no. That's what establishing a healthy boundary is. And because there are as many sexual stories and sexual histories in this room as there are people, I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit right now to be speaking to all of us individually and to say, hey, maybe this week you say, you say no to that or you, you need to add a boundary here. Or perhaps you, you can't quite handle that. That website, this magazine subscription, whatever it is, I just feel like the Spirit knows So I'm going to ask you to just listen well in this time. What could be a boundary that would be wise for you to make so that less grip on your heart could weaken? It's different for all of us in this room, but that's why we have the sweet Holy Spirit that we sang about earlier. Boundaries are important because they enable us to live more free and full lives. It feels like a restriction. It actually makes freedom. It causes us not to be enslaved to our passions and desires. And so boundaries are important. And this morning I'm asking church, may you hear from the Lord a boundary that you might need to establish and may you have the courage this week to put it into action. And that's what we have to do because lust leads to lust, leads to lust. A boundary is the best way to stop that cycle. So again, we've said first that lust causes us to diminish the humanity in others. Now we've said that lust, it leads to lust, leads to lust. Well, finally, third characteristic, lust loves shame. Lust loves shame. Lust loves shame because shame uh, ultimately destroys us through isolation, And less knows that if it can keep someone feeling isolated, if it can keep someone feeling really bad about something they've said or they've done or something that's happened to them, they'll be less likely to speak out or to seek help or to take positive steps forward. Less knows it can keep its spot in someone's heart and mind so long as it can make that person feel like they can't be honest or open with anyone about their true state of being. Church, this is why we've gone to great lengths to make this church a safe space, as safe as we can have it, because transparency and openness and honesty and confession, they're vitally important. They eliminate shame, and shame stunts growth every time. It stands in the way of change. It stops healing before it can even begin by making us feel like what we've said or what we've done can never be forgiven, or by making us believe that what has happened to us... uh, is too embarrassing or too shameful for us to ever speak about in order to find help. The best definition of shame that I know of comes from a psychologist, Alan Downs, who says that shame is the fear of being unlovable. And church, when it comes to our sexual histories and experiences, I think so many of us feel this kind of shame, which is why I want you to hear this morning as our time together comes to a close, that no matter what you've done, No matter what's been done to you, no matter your sexual history or experience, regardless of the choices you've made or choices others have made on your behalf, regardless of addictions or impulses or compulsions, whatever it is, one thing is true that God loves you. God loves you and you're not dirty or tainted or unworthy or something that just disgusts him. uh, You're you're clean. You've been made clean and holy in Christ. This is the good news that is so clearly articulated in Hebrews 10.10 when it says, we who are in Christ have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And this is the good news that we declare each week. This is the thing that gets me back here every Sunday, that we rally around, that no matter what's happened in your past, Jesus' death on the cross has said, clean, it's removed, it's forgiven. Jesus Christ on the cross took sin and shame so that we might be holy and shameless. So as we conclude this sermon series, and as we conclude this particular sermon on lust, may we remember that growing in virtue and fighting vice. It's never about earning God's love. You already have that. And nothing you could ever do could make God love you more and nothing you could ever do could make him love you less. And as we grow in virtue, it's something we do to become more like God, not to make God love us. And so no matter what your story is with lust or gluttony or envy or anger, or any of the other vices that we've discussed, you are loved deeply by God. So there's no need for shame. All you need to do is take open steps of confession and faith, say, here is where I am, and allow God to meet you, and this church to meet you, and us to care for you, and that's how we grow in virtue. And so Nicole said it. We've had a lot of great change happen in these months. My goal is that as we go forward, this summer would be a time where we can recognize, hey, something happened there where I'm not everything I need to be, but I'm not who I was. And in the summer of 2017, we took some big steps forward away from vice and into virtue. Church, be it something from this sermon or any of our sermons, may we continue to be the kind of people who put off vice and put on virtue so that we can become more like the Savior who loves us, Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer, and that's my goal. So you join me in prayer as we ask for God's help in that process. Oh, Lord, and there are so many ways that I fall short so frequently. I'm not everything I'm supposed to be, and yet I can see ways that you have been at work within me and are changing me. And you're doing the same thing in all, oh, so many lives in this church, Lord, as I have the privilege of hearing their stories. And so we're asking you this morning, God, uh, lust is a specific vice that has a deep and tart grip on so many. Lord, would you help us to take the steps we need to take this week in relationship with lust? be it a new friendship that needs to be cultivated, a boundary that needs to be established, Lord, uh, a step kind of out of the darkness into light, saying no to shame and receiving help that would be so vital to us. Lord, whatever it is, would you give us the courage for that? And more broadly, would you help us to be the kind of people that recognize that your will for us is our sanctification, and that our sanctification brings our joy, and that you want us to become more like Jesus, not because it's restrictive or vengeful or you want less for us, but because you want us to live life that is truly life. God, it's hard to take those steps of faith forward, so we're asking now uh, in humbleness for your help. You're going to have to be the force that empowers it all, and we trust that you will because you love us so deeply. You died for us, Lord, and so it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.